0: testament if you don't have your bible with you please uh take one of the bibles underneath the chair you're sitting in or a bible close to you and as some are already doing please join me in standing as we honor god and the reading of his word together this morning stand with us psalm chapter 90 we'll read these 17 verses Prayer of Moses, the man of God. Lord, you've been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, Return, O children of man. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. Verse 5. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are seventy, or even by reason of strength, eighty. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. Verse 11. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord. How long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Let's pray together again. Almighty God, I ask that this prayer that is your word, that you would teach us about what it means and teach us about yourself, God about your greatness that we can't possibly fathom with finite minds. That we would believe in the God of the Bible and not the God of our imagination, not a God who fits our way of thinking. Help us to trust in you. Help us to live accordingly. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You can be seated. If you notice... There's a title in this psalm that says a prayer of Moses, the man of God. And so as we think about perhaps the context of this psalm being a a prayer that Moses actually prayed that later the people of Israel said, we want to copy that down and we want to repeat that prayer because what Moses needed in his day is what was needed in the day of Israel as well. Moses perhaps was looking around the condition of Israel, and he was lamenting. This is a lament psalm, a corporate lament. There's different types of psalms in the Bible. This is called a lament. When you're concerned about something, in agony about something, and sad about something, you would lament, you would mourn. It's a psalm of mourning for the nation. And so as Moses is considered the condition of Israel at the time and of God's people. He was lamenting and he was mourning. And so as the people of God, the people of Israel, after Moses passed away, even for centuries after that, it was written down and they said, this is important to us, not just because they said it, because God said, this is is my inspired word. And the people prayed this because the conditions of Israel continued to be like that. There were still reasons to lament and mourn. And so today we look at this psalm and no doubt, this is a psalm that we must pray And we feel this psalm because there are conditions in our day and our time, just like Moses, just like the nation of Israel after Moses, there are conditions and times in our day where we lament and we are mourning and we are sad. We long for our God to help us make sense of what's going on around us and to be merciful to us because much of what we experience is our own fault. So it's a prayer of Moses But I want you to understand as we read Psalm 90, as we read these words, just like we read any portion in this Bible, even though it says it's a Psalm of Moses, you need to understand this is the word of God. So we read these words. This is not Moses speaking to us. This is verses 1 through 17. Each of those words is God speaking to us. There's something that God is saying about himself that he wants us to know through this prayer that he's ordained Moses to pray and for Israel to write down and for us to have this morning. God is saying something to us. And what we're seeing about God here in this psalm is this is a God who wants us to enjoy our days. Isn't that what Moses is praying, God? We want to be glad again. We want to rejoice again. Oh, Lord, return And what God is saying is God wants to return. God, God wants us to rejoice. He wants us to be glad all our days. This is a God that really does love us. This is a God who wants us to enjoy our days on this earth by fearing him. The way to enjoy your life is to fear God, to know God, to be satisfied in God. Verse 12 Says, teach us to number our days. You know this verse. You heard of it, many of you. Teach us to number our days, that we may get a heart of wisdom. Psalm one ten, or excuse me, one eleven, verse ten says, "The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom." So. The psalmist prays here, Moses prays, God says that we need him to teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. He mentions fear in verse 11. Who who will live according to the fear of God, basically is what verse 11 is saying. So the main point, I believe, of this psalm is this. We need God to teach us to number our days. We need God to teach us to number our days. God wants to teach us to number our days. He wants our days to be numbered in such a way so that he is feared and glorified and we are satisfied in that. We are rejoicing in that. We're not mourning, we're not lamenting. We need God to teach us to number our days. This does not mean, so when we say, Lord, teach us to number our days, this does not mean teach us to number our days solely because life is short and time's a-wasting. I mean, you can get that from Oprah. You can get that from anybody. Everybody looks around and they see death and dying and sickness and they know life is short. And so some say, live it up, because life is short after all. And some would say, well, just don't live for yourself. Live in such a way that people talk well after you you can make the most impact as a good person in our community or as a good person in the world. And, and, and be sure you enjoy your life, enjoy your children. No, that's not solely what the psalm is about. Anybody could tell you that. But what God is telling us here in this psalm It's not just some practical advice. If you notice the first word of verse 12, look at verse 12. What's the first word? S-O, so. So, teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. So. What so means is that in light of what's just been said in verses one through 11 about God, Lord, teach us to number our days in light of what you've revealed about yourself. Yes, Life is short, time's a-wasting, so help us to live our lives according to who you have revealed yourself to be. That's a vast difference between just life is short and live it up or life is short and be sure you enjoy your family. That's important. But God is saying, number our days according to the reality that God is to be feared and God reigns over us. And we need God to teach us that. So, Lord, teach us to number our days. Teach us. It's not natural to us to live according to what God's revealed about himself. We know life is short, so we we live it up. We we try to have this and we try to have that. We try to enjoy this, all without reference to God. We need God to teach us to number our days according to the fear of him, right? Why do we need God to teach us to number our days? two reasons according to this passage of Scripture. Number one, We are guaranteed God. We are guaranteed God. We need God's gifts. What do you need this morning? You need God's gifts to live. You need water to drink. You need food to eat. You need gravity to keep you floating from the surface of the planet. You need air to breathe. And you're not guaranteed any of that. You're not guaranteed the next breath of fresh air going into your lungs. But you and I are guaranteed God. Amen? He's not going anywhere. What we see in verse 1 is that every generation needs God. The psalmist prays, Lord, you've been our dwelling place in all generations. Now we know that God in his grace and mercy, chooses Israel that he will dwell among Israel and dwell with them in the tabernacle, right? That will be his dwelling place. But not because he needs Israel. Every generation always needs God to be their refuge, God to be their dwelling place. Every generation needs God. But verse 2 shows us God exists before every generation. And he needs no one. Look at verse 2. Before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth and the world. From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Every generation needs Him, but He exists before every generation and will exist after every generation has passed. He has no beginning and no end. We always need God, but God does not need us. Wayne Grudem says this. It is God's nature to exist. <laughs> just let that blow your mind for a moment. Think about it. It is God's nature to exist. He just exists. That's what he said to Moses at the burning bush when he got Moses asked for his name. He said, Tell him, Moses, I am who I am. I am has sent you. I just am. No beginning, no end. No cause to God. He's the uncaused cause of all things. Everything around us has a cause, but God has no cause. He is self-existent. I've been teaching my kids a fancy word this week, the aseity of God, the self-sufficiency of God. This is what this verse is talking about. Aseity means his self-sufficiency, his independence. He doesn't need anything. He's not contingent upon anything. He is the one necessary being in the universe. So what we see about God, that before the mountains were brought forth, before he had formed the world, God existed. He's always existed. He didn't have a beginning. He's the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. So the self-existing, self-sufficient, independent, eternal God, the uncaused cause, the uncreated one that we sung about this morning, who is the uncaused cause of all things, is contingent upon nothing and no one, that he has made. And he's not even confined by time. Look at verse 4. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it's past, or as a watch in the night. He's not confined by time. A few seconds later, a few seconds earlier, and we say to ourselves... That truck would not have hit Miss Brenda on the highway Tuesday, but god's is not confined by time god it's as if God sees everything at once as if it's always happening he he's the it, you see you see preacher i don't understand that you're not supposed to understand that right. We're talking about God. He's the God who looks as if every moment that's ever happened and ever will is happening right now in his consciousness. That's what Wayne Grudem says in his systematic theology study, and I tend to agree with that. So what this means is that our God looks knows everything that's going to happen, sees everything as if it's happening, and so since he has perfect knowledge of all things, and he has perfect wisdom, then whatever happens at the exact moment it happens is exactly what should happen, even though we can't wrap our minds around it. Amen? Brothers and sisters, it is the God of the Bible that will sustain you. when a truck takes out your loved one. It is the sovereignty of God, of the Bible. the God that we can't wrap our minds around. This is the God that sustains you. The God who needs no one, but our lives are yet not meaningless. Amen? He wants us. He always acts in perfect wisdom because He knows all things, can do all things. And so he's always doing all things for his glory. We can rest assured he's always doing all things for his glory and for our joy. So I want to implore to you as we think about this one thing that we're guaranteed. You're not guaranteed anything else. You understand? Not even another breath but you're a guaranteed God. He's not going anywhere. He existed before the world was ever made. He's not going anywhere. And so listen carefully to what he says because if he says something, you can bank on it, right? You can say, I'm gonna put my life on this just like the kids were singing in Alex and Michael Brewer's Sunday school class when I walked in this morning. So build your life on the Lord Jesus Christ. Build your life on the Lord Jesus Christ. And when the winds and the rain come down, your house will be firm. When there's things and the winds of the world blow and they don't understand what's going on, your house is built on the God of the Bible, then you, then you stand firm. even with tears in your eyes and a heart breaking, you stand firm. Because we're guaranteed God, no nothing else, but we're guaranteed God. You need to know the God of the Bible. That's why we preach the Bible. We have to be able to live with some mystery and tension as finite human beings, brothers and sisters. We have to. Don't box in God. God will not fit in your tiny little box of finite logic. He won't. See, this doesn't make sense. This is, my, this is how I think about God and he, he must know. This is who God says he is. Know the God of this Bible and let him be God. And quit saying, that doesn't make sense, so it must mean something else. Because it's the God of the Bible that we're guaranteed. And it's the God of the Bible that will sustain. And we need this God to teach us to number our days. We need, we need this God to teach us to live according to who he is. Secondly, we are, we are guaranteed God. Secondly, we are not guaranteed time. We are not guaranteed time. So this week, Monday, it's a long day, Tuesday, I was starting to study, trying to figure out what psalm I was supposed to preach this Sunday, because we're doing a series of messages through the psalms, and I was looking at Psalm 51, and then I thought about the the aseity of God, God's self-sufficiency, this topic, and so I was reading Psalm 90, and I was reading Psalm 90 and studying Psalm 90 on Tuesday, and... And I got this phone call on Tuesday right as I was reading the words, so teach us to number our days. I mean, I was reading those words. and get this phone call about Miss Brenda. We are not guaranteed anything but God. We are not guaranteed time. Verse 3 says, God, look at verse 3. You return man to dust and say, return, O children of man. And when God says, return, O children of man, guess what? You're returning, right? When God says your time, it's your time. And nobody needs to leave with, well, if I'd have done this or done that, this wouldn't happen." happened. <laughs> that's not true. If God says it's going to happen, it's going to happen. Go to Miss Brenda's Facebook page and read the last post that she posted about the sovereignty of God and how what he ordains to pass is nobody can stop it. No evil thing can stop it. Verse 5, synonymously says sort of the same thing about our days. Verse 5, you sweep them away as with a flood, like a flood water's coming. Our days are gone, washed away as if they never were there. You sweep away the flood like a dream in the night. You can't even remember the details. So our days are like that. Our lives are like that. Like grass, verse 5. See the end of that verse, like grass that is renewed in the morning, that's there one moment and gone the next. Our lives, our days are fleeting like that. In the morning, it flourishes. Verse 6, it's renewed. In the evening, it fades and withers. We are not guaranteed time. And the time that we do have, the point here, our time is short, right? That's the point. Our time is short. Later, he says, it might be 70 years and by God's grace, 80 years, but either way, it's it's short. Gone before you know it. Our time is short, beloved, because of our sin. And more explicitly, our time is short because God hates our sin. It's not just short because of our sin. It's short because God hates our sin. This could be a God who looks at our sin and says, okay, I love everybody. I'm not going to do anything about it. No, our time is short because God doesn't look at our sin that way. Our time is short because God hates our sin. Right? This is what the Bible says. Verse 7. For, so here's the explanation. See that word for? First word of verse 7. For, here's the reason your life is short. For, verse 7, we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath, we are dismayed. You, verse 8, have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. So, God sees our sin. As it says back in verse 3, return, O children of man. Some translations might say children of Adam because literally the Hebrew word is Adam. We have a sin nature inherited from Adam, from Adam. And because of that, we sin. Verse eight, you have set our iniquities before you. He's, he always sees our sin. This God, who, in his consciousness, sees every day as, as ever happened, as if it's happening right at that moment, which blows our minds, is always seeing your sin. Psalm 7:11, He is angry with the wicked every day. Our life is short. Because God hates our sin. He sees it. Verse 8 says it's 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 in the light of his presence. It's before you. He looks at it, and he does not overlook it. Verse 9 says, For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are seventy, or even by reason of strength eighty, yet their span is but toil and trouble because of sin. They are soon gone, and we fly away. So we are not guaranteed time. Of our sin, and because God hates our sin. And the big question really comes to in Psalm chapter 90 is verse 11. I hope you listen very carefully and not tune out. The question here in verse 11, let's read it. It says, Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So Almighty God says, I'm seeing your sin, I'm angry at your sin. Who out there considers my anger and my fear and fears me according to my anger? Who out there in the world lives under the fear of God? Who is a God-fearing man? Who is a God-fearing woman? So he cries out in verse 12, Oh God, teach us to number our days. Because the answer to that question in verse 11 is no one. No one fears God like they should. No one lives under the fear of God, lives their life according to the fear of God perfectly. No, not one. Who fears God and lives their short life accordingly? Not one of us. So thirdly and finally, we're guaranteed God. We're not guaranteed time. Thirdly, we need God's grace to change how we live. That's what, isn't that what verse 12 is saying? Isn't that the prayer of the psalmist? Isn't that what God's saying through Moses, through this psalm? He's saying, I can, I can do something about your misery. I can do something about the, 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 the source of your lamenting and your mourning. I can teach you. I can teach you to have a heart of wisdom. I can teach you to fear me. I can teach you to live according to the reality of who I am and not just suppress it. But God has to do it. He has to be the teacher. So we're crying out to God, teach us, Lord. It's not natural for me to live according to the fear of you. It's natural for me to walk away from you and do what I want to do. Teach me. James chapter 4 says, Come now you who say today or tomorrow we'll go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you don't know. You don't know what tomorrow will bring. What's your life. You're a midst that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. We need God to give us this heart of wisdom because we live foolish lives. We act as if we've got all the time in the world. Sometimes people will say, I've got all the time in the world to get right with God. And you don't have another breath guaranteed to you. and The very next breath you breathe may be standing in front of the God that you've denied. We need God to teach us. Why? Verse 12, What your Bible say? That we may get a heart of wisdom because we don't have one. We're foolish. Here's the good news. See, when we read this psalm, we're not reading it like Old Testament Israel did. We have to read it in light of Jesus, right? Jesus has come. And what has God done to give us a heart of wisdom, to teach us? Jesus has come and fulfilled the new covenant. Hebrews chapter 8 says this about his teaching. Verse 10. For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds. And I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God and they should be my people. And they should not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. And when Jesus Christ comes, he inaugurates that covenant. These promises that God will teach us, he will teach us to number our days, he'll give us wisdom in our hearts by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that illuminates God's truth to us from, his, from the Bible, illuminates the gospel to us, When Jesus comes and sheds his blood on the cross and raises from the dead, you know, we we read that scripture when we take part in the Lord's Supper like we did last Sunday. This is the new covenant in my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. When we take that cup and we drink that grape juice, we're reminding ourselves that Jesus' shed blood fulfills this covenant promise. Now we, who are believers in Christ, have the Spirit who teaches us to live Wisely, who teaches us to number our days, to live in the fear of God according to how he's revealed himself. Praise God for Jesus. So, we need God's grace to teach us. We need God's grace to change how we live for two reasons, so that we will glorify God and enjoy him. That's one. So that we will glorify God and enjoy him. That's why God created us, to glorify and enjoy him. That's what I've taught our children all my life to glorify and enjoy him. So we need God's grace to teach us that, to change how we live so that we'll do that. We need Knowing that Jesus has come back, we don't read this the same way as the psalmist did then. So when we read in verse 13, look at it. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. It would Moses have been praying, Lord, come back. And you, know, we're, you said blessings and curses are before you. We're kind of living under the curses right now. Lord, give us favor again. Help us to prosper again. And what we're praying is, God, yeah, do that now. But Lord, really, what we want is Jesus to come back, right? Even so, come, Lord Jesus. Return, O Lord, how long? We're we're lamenting here. We're tired of going to the funeral home. We're tired of going to the hospital. We're tired of our sin. We're tired of hearing about Illinois trying to legislate babies being killed even after they've been born. We're tired. God, come back. And he's going to, amen. But we can pray with confidence that even before he comes, he will work in such a way, even through his church now, that we can see great revival and great sweepings of reform. So don't run up the white flag and say, "I'm just going to sit back and wait till Jesus comes." No, you work till Jesus comes. So this is a corporate lament. Verse thirteen says, "Have pity on your servants." Sunday school class this morning, the little kids, uh, Judah, James one spoke up and said, "What's pity? And it's compassion." mercy God being sorrowful for us to us God do that and we've done it in Christ God do it again Send Christ revive us even now before Christ comes is the prayer because we're lamenting here the sins of people around us that we've mentioned the sins of others towards us persecution we lament death we lament our own sins folks Maybe we need to do a little bit more lamenting about that. And I think really that's the heart of what Moses was talking about here when he prayed this prayer. Israel was a mess because Israel was a mess. They had sinned against God. They complained, you remember? They complained, oh, we'd like to be back in Israel. They gossiped, they slandered. And they committed acts of idolatry even as the law of God was given. And now they were suffering because of it. And we need to lament our own sins. See, oh God, as we wait for Jesus to come. And, so we won't, you know one of the greatest things about being in glory is I'm never gonna sin again. I'm never gonna displease the one I love again. And I should feel that way. Now, God, I, I'm tired of wrestling with this same type of sin. It gets me all the time. God, please do this in my heart. Change me. I can't change it. Give me a new desires. So we lament. We should lament that we wrestle with our sins. We should praise God that we wrestle and we're not given over to it. We, we lament that we don't want to even wrestle anymore. We want to be done with it. We know one day we will be. We want to be done even now. We want to sin less. Because sin won't allow us to rejoice and be glad. See verse 14, satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love. They're not satisfied, right? Satisfy us with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. See, sin, take it robs you of your joy. It robs you of your rejoicing and gladness, doesn't it? If you're a Christian, You cannot be happy in sin. Let me say it again as maybe not vocally as loudly as I would would, so I don't scare anybody. But as clearly as I can. You cannot live in open, unrepentant sin and be happy about it. Be unconcerned. You can't. The Holy Spirit won't let you. that, That lives inside of you if in fact he does. That's what sin does. It makes you miserable. Read Psalm 32 and see how David couldn't sing because he had sinned. Psalm 51. Verse 15 says, Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years have we seen evil. So it's as if Moses is looking out upon the... the uh, lifetime in which he's led Israel and he's seen all the days of affliction because of their sin. He's saying, Lord, return, do something among us so that as many days as we've suffered because of our sin, we'll have that many more days to rejoice and be glad. You know what? Jesus is going to do that for us. As many days as we've seen affliction because of our sin, we're going to see that many days and that many years and many, many more because he's given us eternal life in the new covenant. So we read Revelation 21. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega. Remember the uncreated one who existed before the heavens and existed before the mountains were created and before you were created. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. If you're thirsty, you realize you've sinned against God, you want to be forgiven of your sin, you have no hope other than God's mercy, and you see that's found in Christ, you come and drink of the water of life, freely. It'll cost you nothing, but it cost him everything. But before Jesus returns again, we cry out, God, do this now. Teach us now to number our days, to live according to who you are and not live foolishly, not live flippant lives. So God, we ask for grace... We need God's grace to change how we live so that we'll glorify and enjoy Him. And we need God's grace to change how we live secondly so that we'll not waste our lives. If you look at verse 16, you notice we want God to work mightily amongst us, don't we, folks? Don't we? We've seen God do that in our lives, in our life as a church family even. Verse 16 says, let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. I believe that's what Moses is praying. God, work, work this way where it's unmistakably to the nations that surround us that you are our God. Work that way. Work mightily in us for your glory. And not only do we want God to work mightily among us, we want to work mightily for God. Look at verse 17. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Establish, the word established means put it in place. Let it be fixed. Let it be immovable. Establish the work of our hands. Don't let it be swept away. One day, the work of our hands will stand before the Lord and everything will be burned away. Then the only thing that will remain is what we have done for the Lord. So Jesus says, lay up treasures in heaven so as we think of our labor for the kingdom of God we pray Lord work in our hearts work in us return O Lord even now before Jesus comes work in us renew us teach us by the spirit that lives in us so that we labor in a way that our labor is not in vain. We're not laboring for ourselves. We're not just living to, to, to pay our bills and, and, and just be good fathers and good husbands without reference to God. We want to do those things, but we want to do it in reference to who you are. We want to live all our days according to the fear of you. So God, do that so that we don't waste our time. We don't waste our lives. They don't say, we will not have this mentality that says, well, one of these days. I mean, get it out of here. Get that out of your thinking. One of these days, I'm going to start doing what God wants me to do. One of these days, I'm going to start reading my Bible and get serious about praying. One of these days, I'm going to talk to my neighbor about Jesus. One of these days, I'm not going to fall asleep when the preacher's preaching and really try to soak it in. One of these days, I'm going to get serious about serving the Lord. You're not guaranteed another breath. And if you do know the Lord, you may find out you've wasted most of the life that he's given you here on this earth. Don't waste it. The only thing that remains of what we do with our hands is what we do for God. And I believe that's the point of verse 17. So Miss Brenda. Miss Brenda, if you were here yesterday, a lot lot was said about Miss Brenda and how she served The Lord and served our church family, and uh, most notably, how her heart got on fire. She was a prayer warrior, but also how her heart got on fire for evangelism and and missions and her involvement in in going to Bosnia or helping people go to Bosnia. Which, by the way, maybe this is a good point. We need at least one more person to go to Bosnia with us, especially a lady. So, there you go. Oh, preacher, I wish you hadn't said that. Now I'm going to be thinking about that all day long. (laughs) Um, I remember Miss Brenda getting a heart for missions and just a heart being ignited and how God worked in her heart and so much joy that she had in that. It's like Jesus saying to the disciples who came to the well when Jesus was talking to the woman, they had food, and he said, I have food to eat you don't know about. He was saying, there's something that nourishes me that you don't know about, and that's doing the work of the kingdom. And I think that the Lord had worked in Miss Brenda's heart in the last few years in such a way, igniting her heart for evangelism and missions, especially international missions, that she, she was being satisfied in doing the work of the kingdom in that way. So eventually she got to go with us to, to Bosnia a couple summers ago. And I remember she wrote up in... Uh, my my blue Dodge truck along with Ryan and Lauren Horrell and and Nick Foster and myself. So you can imagine what kind of ride that was all the way to Chicago from here. With Nick Foster blaring the radio the whole way, being our disc jockey, and Miss Brenda sitting in the back seat with this big smile on her face, I thought, man, she's, you know, she's 20 years older than all of us, and and here she is riding down the road, and she's just got this big grin on her face. And then uh, Lauren was telling me yesterday how on the way back, she, we, Brenda and a couple of other ladies got detained at the airport in Austria, Vienna, Austria. And uh, I thought we were going to fly off and have to leave them, but they, you know, it was one of those checks where, hey, you come here, we're going to do this routine check, and they went through all their luggage and took everybody's stuff out and all this stuff. And and uh, Lauren said she looked over at, at uh, Brenda. Lauren was kind of panicking, I guess, a little bit, maybe, but but Brenda was just laughing. <laughs> she just thought it was funny. And just got out her phone and said, let's take a selfie of this, you know. Just enjoying it. But the point is not just that. Brenda's an example just as many of you are. And I'm blessed to be your pastor. Many of you are of knowing, whether it's here or there or wherever, that what really matters is what we do for the kingdom of God. And that's going to last Rena is a good example of someone that was striving not to waste her time. Even though she had retired, she wasn't wasting her retirement. So we remember what 1 Corinthians 15 verse 58 says, that our labor in the Lord is not in vain. As we sang last Sunday night before we left the evening service, When the roll is called up yonder, I'll be there. Let me give you a caution about that, about this laboring. Living for God's glory will not glorify God if you're trying to save yourself, okay? Our labor for the Lord is in vain if it's done to try to earn our place in heaven. Jesus did the labor, amen? It's finished. It's the water of life without cost. It costs nothing, and yet it's going to cost you everything because he says, take up your cross and follow him. As I read a couple weeks ago, something that stuck with me, someone said, for the Christian, any day that does not feel like death is not normal. Our, Our days, if they're normal, should feel very hard and very difficult on this earth. Not because we're trying to work our way to heaven, though, but because Jesus did the work for us. Trust in Jesus' perfect life and his sacrificial death. From everlasting to everlasting, he is God. But life is not meaningless. God's prayer, this is God speaking to us, folks. This is God's prayer for his people. He He created you because he wants you to enjoy him on this earth. And he wants you to fear him and be satisfied in that. And he wants you to live forever with him. And he's provided that through the new covenant Jesus inaugurated. His faithfulness is great. As thou hast been, thou forever will be. Great is thy faithfulness. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for these great promises of your word, God, that are founded upon this great God that you are. You will not change. You have always been and always will be. How small we are in your sight. And yet you took on flesh and became like as one of us, yet you were still God. Thank you for redeeming us. Help us to live in the reality of who you are and what you've done. I pray for the unrepentant sinner today that you would grant repentance and salvation that they would turn to you and trust in you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you're here this morning, if you'd like to talk about your relationship with God, you're not sure, you're not sure if you died, you'd go to heaven. I'd love to talk with you during this time we sing this song or afterwards, I, I hope you'll come and talk with me or another believer that you know that knows the gospel. But let's stand and praise our God right now for who He is.
1: What is the gospel? It all begins with God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God created the first man, Adam, and the first woman, Eve, to rule over the garden. God told them they could eat from any tree that they wanted to in the garden except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Everything was perfect in the garden. They had a perfect relationship with the land, a perfect relationship with each other, a perfect relationship with God, until they chose to rebel against God and eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and it brought about separation between them and God. Man has always tried to bridge the separation on his own terms and in his own strength whether it's building a ladder of morality and trying to be good enough for God, or even in the Old Testament example, when men built a tower into the heavens, trying to reach God on their own. A more contemporary example comes from 1961, when the Russians were first successful in sending a man into outer space. Upon returning, the Russian cosmonaut remarked, "'We've been to space, "'and we didn't find God or heaven there.'" A popular professor and author, C.S. Lewis, responded to the Russian cosmonaut. He said that looking for God in outer space is kind of like Hamlet, one of the characters in Shakespeare's plays, looking for Shakespeare in the attic of his home. Lewis said that for Hamlet to have a relationship with Shakespeare, Shakespeare would literally have to write himself into the story. That is the gospel. The Bible says, For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. The gospel is the account of God writing himself into human history. Almost 2000 years ago, the Bible says that Jesus, in fulfillment to Old Testament prophecies, was born of a virgin. Even as a child, he lived a perfect life. At the age of 30, he began his public ministry. He attracted followers. For three years, he taught, he healed, and he made bold claims, such as saying that he alone was the only way to God. The religious and political leaders did not like these teachings. They invoked a riot against Jesus. They brought about false accusations, leading to a trial and to a sentencing of death by public crucifixion. The Bible says that while Jesus hung on the cross, that God placed all of the sin of all of mankind on Jesus. Jesus hung on the cross as our substitute. God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. They took Jesus down from the cross and they put him in a tomb. They rolled a large stone at the entrance of the tomb so no one could get in or out. There were Roman soldiers who were posted on guard to keep people from coming to take Jesus's body. But on the third day, according to scripture, he rose again. After being seen by many eyewitnesses and giving instruction to his followers, he ascended back into the heaven where he now sits at the right hand of God and serves as our advocate before the Father. So what does this have to do with you? The Bible says that we have all sinned and that we all fall short of God's standard of holiness. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. There is no way to get rid of the burden of sin on our own. God calls all men everywhere to believe in Christ, repent of sins, and trust Christ to live a new life. As we look back and believe in what God has done through the crucifixion, the burial, and the resurrection, as we repent and turn from our sins, as we trust Jesus as our Savior and Lord, we have peace with God and the forgiveness of sins. So let's review, it all begins with God. Because of our sin, we are separated from God. The Gospel is the account of God writing Himself into human history. Jesus died in our place for our sins and rose again on the third day. As we believe in Christ, repent from our sins, and trust Jesus for new life, we have peace with God and forgiveness of sins. That is the Gospel.